0: Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Um, My name is Ryan. I'm pastor here. Um, This one's a little different. Last week, uh, we participated in a really beautiful experience um, that I'll be talking about in a moment. But uh, because we were moving around so much and there's so many different parts, we weren't able to record uh, just one podcast. Uh, So I'm actually sitting down today just to talk you through the process and give some moments for reflection um, that I think will really uh, bring together uh, what we were sharing about this past Sunday. So I encourage you, even if this is a little outside the norm for uh, one of our one of our podcasts, um, just to kind of stay tuned and, and listen and follow through. And I really hope that the Lord speaks to you in that. Um, so we're currently in this series called Signposts in the Mist. And what we're doing is examining how the Old Testament, in its role of pointing us to Jesus, uh, really does that in several different ways. We've looked at prophecies that spoke of God's coming Messiah, God's plan to, to res- rescue and redeem not just humanity, but all of creation. Um, we have also looked at some archetypes or antitypes, um, certain people in the Old Testament who demonstrate in a partial way what Jesus was going to be in his fullness. And this past Sunday, I wanted to look at a very specific kind of antitype And it's not a person or a character in the Old Testament that reflects what Jesus is going to be like in his fullness, but it was actually a place and a process of worship. Uh, And so we're going to be talking about how Jesus is the new tabernacle. Uh, So I want to kind of begin by honing in on the words of the writer of the the letter to the Hebrews. In chapter 9, they wrote this. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what's in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. And so what the writer of Hebrews is really setting us up to understand is that we can see in the journey of worship in uh, the the tabernacle as it was laid out to Moses, and then later on in the temple era, which was really a more permanent version of the tabernacle form of worship, we can see this echo of these heavenly realities. Uh, And when we begin to see that, that these were just kind of the models or the practice for what it was really like in heaven in approaching God's throne room then we begin to see that Jesus himself becomes these different points along the journey of worship in the tabernacle as he rescues and redeems those images and brings us into full relationship uh, with God. And even the writer of, uh, of the Gospel of John recognizes this in the very beginning uh, in his creation poem. Uh, we could almost translate chap- uh, verse 16 in chapter 1 uh, literally like this. Uh, And the word became flesh and did tabernacle among us, and we beheld his glory. Um, You know, God made his place among us, or as Eugene Peterson says, God moved into the neighborhood. Uh, And it's such a beautiful image for us uh, right there at the beginning of the Gospel of John, which we're going to come back to several times during this process. Um, because it really reflected what we find in that Old Testament story that Israel, as a nomadic people, would would build their campsite. They'd have all, you know all of their tents, in, but they're all circling around the tabernacle, the big, the tent where God chose to make His place known among His people. So, as we uh, encounter each of the the symbols in that uh, worship journey through the tabernacle, I want you to be considering how Jesus fulfills each one of those things, not just in his earthly ministry, but also in his death and his resurrection and ascension, um, how he fulfills each of those symbols in order to bring us close to God. So the first symbol that we encounter is the doorway. And so we had um, a gate kind of built up on top of the roof that was the only way for us to get up into the place, and and in the in the Old Testament model, what we found was that there was a wall uh, that was defined as a courtyard around the actual tent, the holy place uh, where God chose to dwell, and there was only one way in through this uh, this uh, this wall into the courtyard to begin the process of worship. And that wall was significant because it separated out the normal, everyday, mundane life of the Israelites from the place that they would come to worship. And that there was significant to them that there was one very specific and narrow gate for them to walk through. Um, so it necessitated that Israel had to prepare themselves uh, for encounter. And what it speaks to us is that, you know, it's, it's not for us to accidentally stumble into the presence of God, but in worship that we're making a conscious effort uh, to come to his household, to enter into his place. And the beautiful thing is that that gate, that doorway, it's always open and it's always ready to receive uh, whomever wants to step into God's presence. And that's even what we find in uh, John chapter 14, when Jesus speaking of himself And remember, especially in the Gospel of John, whenever he uses the phrase, I am, that he's hearkening back to the very first encounter that Moses has with God in the burning bush. And and Moses asks, who should I say is sending me? Uh, And and God says, uh, Yahweh, I am giving his name. I am being who I am being. So when Jesus makes these I am statements, he's aligning himself with Yahweh himself. And so in John 14, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus posits himself as that doorway, as that gateway, the one true way for us to enter into the presence of God Um, And so we recognize that we're not entering into God's presence through our own actions, but that because of what God has accomplished through Jesus, the way has been made open for us. Uh, In other places, the scripture talks about how the ground has been made level and the obstacles have been removed. And now there's this clear trajectory between where we're at in our normal everyday lives and being able to enter into the presence of God. Um, And so for us as Christ followers, we still, we must prepare ourselves to enter into God's presence um, because he has freely opened the way through Jesus. It changes the spirit of our approach. And so this is why it's so important for us to have something of a call to worship Uh, something that centers us, that awakens us to, hey, this is where we're going. This is what we're about to do. We don't step into this casually or accidentally, but we come with intention. And so we were looking at uh, Psalm 95 and especially Psalm one. 22 begins by saying, I rejoiced when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And that should be the same attitude in which we step into worship. So I just want us to take a moment in reflection and just ask ourselves, when I'm preparing myself to come to the house of the Lord, uh, what does that process look like? Am I I stepping in with the full intention that it deserves and saying, I'm going to my father's house. So let's just take a moment and reflect. So we've entered through the doorway. We've come from the normal everydayness of our lives, and we've stepped into the courtyard. We're not even to the holy place yet, but here we already find these two symbols that stand as further opportunity for us to prepare ourselves to enter into God's presence. The first is the sacrificial altar, And the second is called um, the brazen laver. So first, a little bit about this sacrificial altar. Uh, In the courtyard, it was uh, a place that was prepared for Israelites to bring uh, what was called a sin offering, which was uh, an animal sacrifice, a substitution that had to be without blemish that would take upon themselves uh, the sin of a person, a family, or even a whole tribe. And it's important for us to recognize that the sin offerings that Yahweh requires in the Old Testament were not so much about appeasing his bloodlust, but rather about being bound to this life promise. You see, a lot of the other nations around Israel in the time uh, believed that their gods needed the shedding of blood to appease their anger and their wrath. Um, and what I think is actually happening there within Israel is that God takes a symbol that is familiar to his people, but he subverts the purpose. And he tells them, instead of this being about me being angry and needing someone to die on a, for sin, uh, I'm actually going to make this about the promise that we are, are agreeing to together. So we even find in the story of Abraham, Uh, that God asks for a sacrifice of a a bull to be split in two. And what God is really saying in that sacrifice is, uh, if I don't hold up to my end of the bargain, may this be what happens to me. And so, of course, we see that. Um, echoed in Jesus on the cross that Jesus didn't die to appease the bloodlust of God, but rather it is God incarnate saying, I am so committed to my promises that I will break myself open on behalf of them to see uh, my creation reconciled unto myself. What we find in the Old Testament is that there was no amount of animal sacrifice that would clean up humanity. There weren't enough bulls and rams and sheep and doves and pigeons and so on, that it was a, a constant process of having to shed blood in order to atone for those sins. Um, and even by the end of the Old Testament, we begin to see in some of the prophets that that they're questioning the whole system itself. Is this really working? Is this really how we are going to be reconciled to God? So again, we come to the writer of Hebrews, and in chapter 9 of their letter, uh, they kind of make this point, beginning in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places in Jesus, the same way that Paul did in his writings, that Christ was the sacrifice once and for all, but it was through the willingness to shed his own blood to create that that connection back to God, to fulfill the promise, the covenantal promise um, that we're all saved into that new relationship. And it's beautiful that, that Jesus stands both as the high priest making the sacrifice, but also the sacrifice itself. Uh, and so in that way, Jesus fulfills Um, the imagery that we find in the sacrificial altar. The second image that we find in the courtyard before we enter into the holy place was the bronze laver. And this was a huge bronze bowl filled with water. And after the Israelites made their sacrifice upon the altar, they would move to the laver and they would wash their hands there. And this was a symbol of their purification after the sacrifice, that their sins are being washed away. And so for them, it was a reminder And a a deeper leading of uh, God moving Israel through the Red Sea after delivering them from Egypt, literally them moving from the land of death into the land of life, and in doing so, their sins are being washed away. And um, for us, as as New Covenant people, we recognize this in the process of our baptism. That you know, in the beginning of the New Testament, uh, John the Baptist is washing people's sins away in the Jordan River, again, as an echo of what we see with God and the Red Sea. Um, and what it really tells us is it's through the the process of being purified of our sins that we are further prepared to enter into God's presence. Now, the interesting thing about these two symbols, the, the fire of the sacrifice and the water of purification, um, is that we don't have an equivalency as Christians. We don't believe anymore that we need Um, to be making sacrifices to atone for our sins, nor do we believe that we have to keep washing ourselves over and over and over again in order to be worthy of being in God's presence, because we recognize that Jesus has fulfilled both of those symbols. However, we uh, are called as Christians to the sacrifice of confession. Uh, And then the washing of repentance. Um, And so, like I said, in the Old Testament, we begin to see the cracks in the system towards the very end. And um, there's this really powerful moment in David's life when uh, he's overwhelmed by recognizing his own sin. And in Psalm 51, he kind of questions how things have been done up to this point. And he says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. I think this is so prophetic uh, for the life that comes after the work of Jesus uh, because I believe that the sacrifice that we're called to make as Christians is is the sacrifice of an honest and a vulnerable heart, that we're to come to God recognizing that guilt and shame no longer keep us from him, uh, but actually it's through our honesty with him Um, that we can hand over the things that hold us back uh, so that he can do away with them. I think so often in our lives, it's the unconfessed sins that we hold on to, that we subconsciously discount ourselves from being able to come into God's presence. And so confession and repentance actually give us permission to let go of the things that hold us back so that we can enter fully in with God with a clear conscience And so we're going to take a moment, and and I'm going to pray, and I'm just going to invite the Holy Spirit to highlight to you uh, a couple different sins. The first of all is something that you have said or done or haven't said or haven't done that in some subconscious way uh, has led you to shame and guilt, that you feel like you're not worthy of being in God's presence, that you have to figure out how to clean yourself up or just discount yourself altogether from being with Him. Uh, and we're going to invite the Holy Spirit to reveal that kind of sin to you in a moment. Uh, but the second, I think, is just as powerful. And it's sins that have been committed against you. Something that some someone has said to you or done to you, um, but you have carried that with you as well. And in some way, that is something that has prevented you from fully entering in. Um, so we're just going to invite the Lord to to reveal those sins to you and just In your mind's eye, I I want you to confess those sins to God, and I want you to to lay those at the feet of Jesus, asking for his justice. Not a justice that uh, reinforces your fears and pushes you away from him, but a justice that actually does away with sin uh, so that you can be brought deeper into his presence. Uh, So let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that through the sacrifice of Jesus, Uh, He became the sacrifice once and for all, uh, that there was no more need uh, for bloodshed. Um, There was no more need for this constant coming back and and trying to make amends and trying to to repair what's been broken apart, because uh, through Jesus, you have have come through uh, on your promises for us fully, Uh, that it's not about our performance, but it's about your full and complete willingness to take it all upon yourself. Um, but, Lord, we recognize, just as your servant David did, even before Christ, uh, that you invite us um, to be open and vulnerable to you, to lay down a sacrifice of uh, honesty um, in letting you uh, highlight to us, to, to illuminate to us, sin in our lives uh, that we've committed or has been committed against us, that in some way holds us back from, from your presence that you want to do away with those things. You want to, to take them from us so that we can enter in uh, to your presence with a clear conscience. So Father, we just invite you right now uh, through your Holy Spirit uh, to illuminate those things to us right now that we might confess and repent and thus be drawn deeper into your presence. So we've entered through the doorway into the courtyard. We've participated in the sacrificial altar and uh, the bronze laver um, of confession and repentance and being washed of our sins. And now we're ready to enter into the holy place, the large tent that stood at the center of the tabernacle. Um, And we first step into the holy place and it's completely dark. Uh, But there are two tables, one at either side of the room, one containing a lampstand and the other containing uh, the bread of the presence. So, first, a little bit about the lampstand. God commanded Israel to build this beautiful seven tiered candelabra out of gold that was um, incredibly ornate and full of symbolism in and of itself. Uh, But it contained these seven candles that became the only illumination in the holy place. this is incredibly significant that these are the candles that would be lit to illuminate um, the, the place where the priests would go about in the worship of Yahweh. And and maybe some of you know the story of Hanukkah, but where um, several uh, Jewish freedom fighters uh, found themselves holed up in the holy place, uh, protecting themselves from um, from armies coming against them. And it was actually the these seven lamps uh, that... Uh, through through the miracle of God, were able to provide them light much longer than they should have, is what the Jews celebrate in Hanukkah. Uh, so we're talking about the very same lampstand that we find in these tabernacle days. Uh, and as I said, it's the only light in the holy place. There was no other light that could penetrate into that area because the the curtains were so thick. And I think what this speaks to us then um, is to recognize Jesus, Uh, as the one true light. So again, another I am statement from the Gospel of John in chapter 8, that Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And so as Christians, we recognize that even in the darkest of places, uh, Jesus is the one true light that we can turn to as it says in Hebrews, that he's the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his character. And the more that we focus on Jesus as the one true light, the more we recognize that so many of the other things that we thought were the source of light uh, become steadily dimmer. Uh, They become these counterfeits um, that they don't really provide the warmth and the direction that we need. And so the other table that we find in the holy place was the table of the bread of the presence, sometimes called the show bread. And this was a long table that always had 12 loaves of bread sitting on it. And they were rotated out weekly that by the end of the week, when those loaves became stale, it was the job of the priests uh, to consume that bread and to make sure that there were 12 more loaves in place. Uh, In Exodus 25, Yahweh says, you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. This was a really fascinating symbol. We're not exactly sure what it was for, but but there's a couple different theories that I think are pretty compelling. Uh, Number one is that bread spoke to God's constant provision of sustenance for his people, um, that there would always be enough. And these 12 loaves uh, were representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. Basically, a symbol saying, I'm going to provide for everybody. But I think on a deeper level, the bread of the presence uh, really is this vision of what God's radical hospitality is like, uh, that God always wanted the table to be set for his people to come and to fellowship and to dine with him. And so we can even see the showbread as this act of friendship between uh, God and his people. Um, Not as it just about providing them with sustenance, but it was also about creating a space Um, for them to come together in intimacy and to grow in relationship. And yet again, we find another I am statement from Jesus in John 6 that speaks to this. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven." not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on this son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. And so for us as Jesus followers, We recognize that there's a new table that's been set for us. A table that not only speaks to God's provision of sustenance for us uh, in Jesus, but also a table that is set as a vision of God's hospitality and an act of friendship. Um, But at this table, uh, of course, speaking of uh, communion of the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. God provides his own body and blood to become our sustenance. And so when we as Christians come together to the table in whatever state we're in, however close we feel to God or far away from him, we recognize that it's God who has set the table for us and is constantly beckoning us back to it. So I want to take a moment again to reflect on uh, on that place of the table. And perhaps this is even the place to remember one of my favorite passages of the New Testament, the parable of the prodigal, that as the son is returning home to his father, his father rushes out to meet him, to embrace him, and to walk him into the house, to give him a seat at the table uh, to provide that, that place of beautiful and radical hospitality. Uh, but let's just take a moment and reflect on what it means that because of Jesus providing his body as uh, the bread of life, that we're able to sit in the presence of our Father, to, to dine with Him, uh, to, to be in relationship with Him um, in the way that we were created. So we've moved from the courtyard um, of preparation. We've moved into the holy place, the place of, of worship, of recognizing what God is really like. And now we're getting ready to move into uh, the Holy of Holies. So it was kind of a, a room within the room, a tent within the tent. And if the holy place was the realm of the priests where they were there constantly before God worshiping him, then the holy place, um, the absolute presence of God, was only accessible to the high priest once a year. In fact, it was such an intimidating place uh, for people to be that they would tie a rope around the ankle of the high priest with a bell on it. And if he entered into the most holy place uh, and he wasn't fully. you know, transparent in his, in his sin or whatever it might be, he could actually fall down dead. They'd know that from uh, the ringing of the bell and they'd pull his body out and then nominate a new high priest. Um, So this was an incredibly, incredibly rare place to find yourself. But there were two uh, sort of three main symbols kind of around uh, the, the, the holy of holies or the most holy place. The first was the altar of incense, and God commanded uh, the Israelites in Exodus 30, said, You shall put it in front of me, the vi- the, of the veil that is the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony where I will meet you, speaking of this altar of incense. And incense for Israel uh, was a symbol of God's manifest presence. They use the word Shekinah, which we translate to glory. And so this constantly burning incense was the physical, visual representation to all of Israel that God was present with them. That This incense was burning in front of the Holy of Holies and it would rise up through the roof of the tent. And so no matter where you were in the campsite, you could always turn, you could see, oh, God is with us because I see the evidence of him there. And it was constantly burning uh, as well. the The priests were always keeping this incense burning as that recognition of God's constant presence. And it was not just with the sight that you could see the smoke of the incense, but that you could also smell it. It was the the aroma of God, as it's spoken of in the Old Testament. And I think the the imagery there is so beautiful for us as Jesus' followers. Um, that we don't, you know, in some churches they do, but not all of us literally burn incense as that manifest presence of God. Um, but we actually recognize if the tabernacle was the place that God lived in the Old Testament, he now lives within his church, uh, within his people. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul says this, For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. And so now in the new covenant, uh, you and I are the, the place where God dwells. And we become the symbol of his glory, of his manifest presence. And so when a world crying out for answers says, where is God? They should be able to look at you and me and the church and say, there he is. There's the evidence of his presence because of the, the, the lives of these people who have chosen to be that symbol that God is on the move, that God is rescuing and redeeming his creation. Um, And so let's just take a moment, and I want you to think about that, that you are the aroma of Christ, that you're constantly before God, uh, burning as this living sacrifice um, that is a pleasing sacrifice to God, because when he looks at you, he sees, and indeed somewhat hysterically uh, smells, Uh, Christ, but you become the evidence of Christ in this world. And so from the altar of incense that burns before the Holy of Holies, uh, you pass through the veil, the thick curtain that was there to separate out God from man into uh, the most holy place. Um, and so this, this veil, this thick curtain was there to separate the people from the full presence that nobody in that time with the exception of the high priest once a year, could stand to be in the full presence of God, uh, and behind the veil, we find the Ark of the Covenant. On the top of the Ark of the Covenant is what's called the the Mercy Seat, and this is the place where God chose to dwell, His unapproachable throne on Earth, where He would hand out His judgments for His people. And again, we find uh, the writer in Hebrews ten kind of picking up these symbols. Um, not just of the veil, but the Ark of the Covenant itself, uh, and speaking how Jesus fulfills those. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised us is faithful. And so it's amazing. Here we see all of these symbols that we've been gathering up: that the the Jesus is the sacrifice, Jesus is the water, Jesus is the curtain Himself uh, ripped open to give us the access to God. Jesus is the priest constantly attending before the Lord in the house of God, uh, and that Jesus is the covenant, the promise of God revealed, um, all of these things kind of find their fulfillment in the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension uh, of Jesus. And so we, we recognize when it comes to the symbols of the Holy of Holies is that the way has been made open for us and that we are free to enter into God's presence as his beloved children, that we no longer need somebody to go in on our behalf. We no longer need uh, to be in that position where God is held at an arm's length because of fear for our own lives, but that we now have full access to the Father because of who Jesus is and what he's done. And not only did Jesus uh, redeem and rescue uh, the images of the tabernacle and then by extension the temple, um, but he also uh, gives us those patterns on the other side of the resurrection as ways in which we can understand uh, symbolically what it means to, to enter into the presence of God. Um, and so I, I hope that that each of us are able to look back and not see these obscure patterns of worship that people had thousands of years ago that have very little to do with us. But we actually see in them that God was setting up a story, not just for Israel, as they're looking uh, through these signposts into the mist, trying to understand what God's up to, but that we look back and we say, ah, this is this is the way in which God desire, designed it all, that he He planned to bind it all up into Jesus, and it becomes part of our own story. Uh, so I just want to uh, kind of, for us to finish out uh, by giving you this benediction uh, that God instructed for the priests in that tabernacle era that comes from Numbers 6. And so, um, you know, if you're in a place where you're not driving or something and you want to put your hands out in front of you to receive uh, this blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.